I'm Jeff Gibson. And I'm Shanna Paxton. And we are the Movie, movie Lovers. Lovers. Welcome <laughs> to the official hey, hey. podcast of the, uh, what is it? The Gibson Review. That's what we are associated with. The Gibson Review blog. In every episode, we first like to talk about the week in review, what movies or TV shows we've been watching since the last episode, move on to a main event, which is either a main topic of discussion or a main review, and then wrap up with film faves, our respective list of 12 favorite movies around a particular topic. In this episode, our main event will be a review of Captain Marvel, the latest film from the Marvel Cinematic Universe, and then film phase will be a joint list of our favorite films around the year 1988, going back to our year-by-year countdown. So before we get back into the show, I just want to uh, do a little bit of housekeeping. I think I made a mistake in the last episode when I was talking about one of my favorite animated movies of the decade. I had associated the Lego movie with 20th Century Fox animation and it's actually Warner Brothers animation. So my bad. Uh, so I wanted to correct my mistake. Now, moving right along, Shanna, you, I believe, have actually gotten to watch a couple things on your own without me. Why don't you share what you've been watching? It is true. It has actually happened <laughs> for weeks now. I've actually been able to see something by myself. Yay. So the first thing I'll talk about is The Brave Little Toaster. Oh, okay. Yes, from 1987. Mm -hmm. uh, it's an animated film. It's actually by Disney. It's the first film we got to see where objects were animated. I think that's right, unless you count Fantasia. Okay. Well, not counting Fantasia because the Fantasia is in its own category, Okay. I feel. It's the first time you get to see objects animated, and in this case, it's a couple of appliances that are stuck in a cabin. They've been waiting for years for their their person to come by. Mm. They love their kid. Uh, it's funny that the toaster and the vacuum and the lamp and the radio, I guess the blankie makes sense, are all waiting for this kid to come back. Interesting. And it's really interesting. They, they get fed up essentially they've waited long enough they decide they're going to go on an adventure and they're going to find him and they have this really high iq actually because they managed to find him in the city okay. when they're in a cabin so very interesting i used to love this film as a kiddo and when i watched it the other night i felt like i was going to throw up with anxiety because <laughs> oh there were so many horrific things that were happening to these appliances and the appliances around them. Nothing else became animated. Uh -huh. uh, it was just appliances. Okay. So the idea is that if you have some sort of charge or you're plugged in, uh -huh. is that you, you kind of have this power. So they have about four musical numbers in there. Uh -huh. The first one is happy and go lucky because they're on this journey, right? Mm. And the rest is them coming across these horrific ways in which appliances could be lost forgotten destroyed ripped apart replaced mm. so like if i take a really big step back i can see what they were trying to go for they were like repair your appliances appreciate your appliances don't just throw them out and don't just replace them really appreciate what you have mm. but it's so horrific during this film it goes from 
appliances just getting hurt, as an appliance does, like an air conditioner falling apart because it's been years since it's been maintained, mm-hmm. to a blender being pulled apart in a very horrific way. It's almost like a psycho way because it's all done by a, shadows, by another character, by another person, mm. and it's just it. And the characters are so mean to each other. It's like. You know, we hear about Toy Story, how Woody had to be rewritten Mm. because he was too unlikable and too mean. Mm. I feel like the Brave Little Toaster's characters were essentially that. They didn't get a rewrite. Mm. And it was just, I would not introduce this to my kid. Mm. Maybe I'd introduce it when they're much older, but I would never show my, my young kids this because... You know, the characters are so mean to each other. Things are being destroyed either by, you know, other electronics or appliances Mm -hmm. or by humans. Mm -hmm. And it makes it look very personified. Mm -hmm. Interesting to go back to because it was a childhood favorite. It turns out I was out of the room for most of the movie. Because whenever something scary would happen, I would move away. So, uh, okay. So, first of all, this was created during the dark period of disney uh, in the 80s i actually didn't even realize it was a theatrically released animated movie i remember seeing it on shelves okay you know and i always just assumed it was one of those direct to dvd animated movies of disney's but apparently it was actually a theatrically released uh film from 1987 right in between great mouse detective and oliver and company Right there. And so this was a childhood favorite of yours then, right? Yeah, for a while. Yeah. So it had been a long time since you'd gone back and seen it? Yeah, I don't think I had seen it since I was maybe seven. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, turns so, out that was a really bad film. Yeah, so doing so, Content it's one of those was. where, as an adult, you, you didn't really like it anymore. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. it was just too horrific. Yeah, I've, I've had those experiences too. That's kind of a bummer when that happens. Yeah. But uh, I guess there's a reason why you don't really hear about that movie very often. So that's The Brave Little Toaster. What's the other thing you got to see? So the other thing I got to complete was a TV show, of course. And the TV show is a American crime story. And this is the second season. The first season was dealing with the O.J. Simpson trials. Okay. Which apparently was like three years ago. I oh can't believe gosh. it was that and long ago. Oh my gosh, and it was so fantastic. Yeah. I remember we both really loved it. Yeah. Then this one is dealing with the assassination of uh, Gianni Versace. Mm. And it's interesting. Now, I love crime shows, but this one was a bit much for me in that it made me feel really uneasy mm. a lot of the time. If it made you feel uneasy, it was a bit much for you, yeah. then I, it definitely was not for me. So I can't we, imagine. <laughs> we found my weak spot. Yeah. Turns out if you're living a life of like, is it called grandeur? Visions sure. of grandeur? Oh, delusions of grandeur? Delusions of grandeur. Oh, yeah. And cons- constantly lying and, uh-huh. you know, and then you're a psychopath cause, and a serial murderer, mm-hmm. essentially. Apparently that sets me off mm. a little bit. <clears throat> so because it's just, just a combination of everything? It's not even the murders that bother you? No, I think the murders did bother me because they're quite... I don't know the technical term I would use, but I'll use a term, you know, given my experience watching crime shows. Mm. It was quite sadistic and realistic. 
it's like he's using practical things. He's he's essentially I don't want to spoil anything. To be more specific, there's nine episodes. It start off with the murder of Versace, mm-hmm. and it, who did it, which is Andrew Cunningham. And so what's happening is you're following both of these people's stories backwards, and then it finally the last episode brings you back to the present and how things are going to resolve. Okay. So it's interesting in that way. It was a little confusing at first. And at times, you know, if you see, there were about five murders. So that's not a spoiler because this is based on <laughs> Spoiler for real life. Like if you didn't know, well, you know, now you know. Yeah. So, Which I gets, didn't know. I will say I didn't know anything about this. I do like knowing about serial killers, and I didn't know about Andrew Cunningham, so yeah. I'm probably butchering his name, but too bad. <laughs> um, if you have never been exposed to like vision, delusions of grandeur, yeah, yeah, this yeah. is the one to go learn about because uh, okay. they do they depict it so well. Okay, it's yeah, it'll make you uneasy. It'll be great, um, and then you get to learn a little bit about Versace. Mm. And that's interesting. However, even though she uh, congratulated Penelope Cruz on her portrayal of her. Oh, the she, real person. Yeah. She did say that most of it is just fiction on huh. the Versace side. So the, what they probably did was they took like, you know, milestone events that Gianni Versace spoke about. Yeah. And then they probably filled in the gaps. Interesting. what happened. Huh. Okay. That's interesting. So... So I recommend it if you're like a crime fan. You, you, you did like it, and you thought it was pretty. It was pretty solid. It's pretty solid. It just it felt really different because it was going backward in time, uh-huh. following the two storylines of both of these characters. Yeah, but did that work? In the end, it worked. Okay. Yes, because they kind of displayed why they did that. Okay. All right. Well, I I think it, it, from what you were saying about the murders and stuff, it sounds like way too much for me oh yeah if you're not into gore then you yeah. can't watch this whereas the oj simpson trials like you could get through that because it was all about the trials right it was all about the court case and other things and yeah very good okay so assassination of versace did um, you get to watch anything yeah uh, i don't think i saw anything of note maybe maybe i saw something that i'm going to talk about in future episodes but no, I think, but we did get to see a few things. One thing that we were going to talk about in the last episode, but we talked so much about the Academy Awards and the Golden Globes, uh, we needed to uh, make an edit. So uh, we uh, saw the documentary about Joan Jett, uh, which is now, since we saw it, has moved over to Hulu. So yay, but, you all get to enjoy it. Right. Uh, it Go called, do it now. <laughs> it's called Bad Reputation. Yeah. And it primarily features Joan Jett talking and recounting her past but it has some other talking heads of other people who know her best or who've worked with her over the years you get Kristen stewart miley cyrus and i think i like her closest confidant names kind of escape me some members of the runaways uh, talk in the film but what were your thoughts uh, and did you have any takeaways from this documentary about joan jett Well, you never know what someone like this is like in real life, right? And you never really know their story Mm -hmm. unless you read about them, etc. And I had never been exposed to her. 
uh, other than her music. That I was going to say, it. okay. But I never saw any articles in teen magazines growing up or right. anything like that. So it was really interesting to see her story. Mm-hmm. And it was so nice that she's still with us. Mm-hmm. It's always nice when a documentary ends like that. Right. It's so It feels so rare when that happens. Mm. Did I gain anything from it? Mm-hmm. I think I gained a greater appreciation for her determination and commitment to her work. Mm. And she's a woman that wanted to create music the way she wanted to create music. Mm -hmm. And she didn't care that it was only men and men were dominating and men were even threatening women when they were trying to join the movement, that movement of music. You mean try just to be musicians? Yeah. 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 So it certainly gives me an appreciation for women who have had to fight that struggle Mm. and who came out on the other end. Another comparison, I'll share my thoughts on the film in a moment, but another comparison is a documentary a couple of years ago about Kathleen Hanna, who also is in this documentary, oh, yeah. uh, called Punk Sear. I'm curious, like, they're both structurally more or less the same yeah. as documentaries, and I'm curious, did you feel that you you got more out of one than the other, or one worked better for you or than the other? I think I like Kathleen Hanna's one more okay why is that i felt like it was broader on the topic because mm-hmm. okay. it was the punk movement right yeah, right girl yes okay it feels like that movement was really important for women in rock women in music mm. and i had no idea that there was a struggle in the first place mm. i think she was very vocal and very protective of other female pus- musicians in that movement Mm -hmm. and so i really liked how they explained everything to me in that film whereas in uh, joan jett's one it's you know obviously we're following joan jett specifically yeah and they don't explain everything as they go along they explain certain situations Mm. but they don't explain well this is what a punk rock singer is this is what the history of it is this is you know, how we struggled, blah, blah, blah. It, it doesn't go in depth into it. I don't really feel like it needed to do that kind of details. Um, I do feel like it does, if I remember correctly, it does kind of breeze through stuff pretty quickly. I mean, like yeah. within the first five minutes she of the documentary, she's all of a sudden a member of the Runaways. You know, the Runaways are formed within five minutes of the documentary and just kind of whew, goes through. I, I would say that... The difference between us is when you were growing up, plus you have the cultural situation, Joan Jett wasn't as pervasive or as big in the music scene. You know, she didn't really come out with much material in the 90s, whereas in the 80s, that's when she was really, especially as a solo artist, coming out with, you know, I Love Rock and Roll, Bad Reputation, a whole bunch of stuff, right? She even had a movie in 1987 that she starred in, right? So she was much more of a presence in the 80s when I was growing up than in the 90s when you were growing up. Watching this movie, though, there's, there's, there's a couple things that I was like, ah, you know, that kind of bothers me. First of all, they pretty much act like she's the first woman in the Runaways or the first female-led band to exist. And when, in fact, actually, like, uh, years before that, there was a band called Fanny that was all-female band that existed. And then, like, a couple years before the Runaways, Heart existed, which wasn't all-female, oh, yeah. but it was very important. It was female-led. You know, 
And then, like, a year, I think it was a year after The Runaways first formed, you had bands like X-Ray Specs, The Slits, and The Raincoats all, all came out, too. And the movie doesn't acknowledge any of this at all. You know, it's very much of the the mindset that like Joan Jett is the pioneer no one else came before Joan Jett and no one else came before the runaways and that kind of but rubbed me in the wrong way as much as you know because I actually like I don't have anything against Joan Jett you know I appreciate Joan Jett and I appreciated her more watching this documentary because of all the other facets that she's kind of evolved into you know she's for lack of a better term she's like an advocate you know she she gets she's gotten political She's, I think, a, a vegan, if I remember correctly. Mm-hmm. She, she's deep. Yeah, she's really, she's, she walks her talk. She's a huge advocate mm-hmm. for animals. Like, yeah. you know, she, there's all these other aspects to her, as well as also being very supportive of the other women up, uh, coming up in, in music. And all that was really kind of cool to see, you know, this really softer side to her, mm-hmm. you know, and to see that she actually had a, from what I remember, a good relationship with her parents, too. You know, all these kinds of things that you don't typically associate with women yeah. in music, especially of those times, was actually kind of nice to hear. But there was a couple of things that kind of rubbed me a little bit wrong. So I didn't, I didn't think it was, like, I, I think it would have benefited by, like, you know, having a little bit of humility and not, necess- not necessarily saying, like, Joan Jett is the, the be-all, end-all, and the start of all things, you know, of women in music. Because there was definitely, that's definitely not the case. But anyway... That's Bad Reputation, the documentary about Joan Jett, which is now on Hulu. Moving right along, we caught up with a couple more 2018 releases. Uh, First of all, uh, we had a hard time. We really wanted to catch up with this before the awards. Didn't get to, but we finally got to, like, right after the Oscars. Uh, That is Can You Ever Forgive Me? Mariel Heller's second film, I believe, this time starring Melissa McCarthy as a real-life woman who was an author. Mostly she did biographies. But she was definitely down in the dumps financially, and she decided to start forging literary letters and, you know, just coming up with literary letters on her own, claiming that they're these famous people from the past. And she came up with like 400 letters or something like that and sell them to collectors just so she could pay the bills. So Richard E. Grant also starred, and he, of course, was nominated for a Golden Globe and Oscar for his performance. Shannon, what did you think of Can You Ever Forgive Me? I enjoyed it. I thought that the performances were the best part mm-hmm. uh, of the entire film. Okay. And I really was fond of Melissa McCartney's portrayal of Lee Israel. I thought that, you know, anything that she does is, is going to be amazing. I thought it was also a really interesting story, and I I thought it was an interesting idea. Every time she went to someone to sell a letter, Mm. they were just super happy to have it. There wasn't like this certification process. You know, we've been to Comic-Con, and we see what it's like when comic books are going through a certification process, and they have ratings uh, out of 10, you know? Right, for quality. Yeah, and I just thought it was so fascinating that they were not doing that with the letters from the beginning. It was just like, oh my gosh, gold, which in a way is amusing because it means that she was doing a pretty good damn job of it, imitating these people. 
Well, people were a lot more trusting. And remember, this took place in the past, I think, in the early 90s, if I'm not mistaken. Yes, but, I mean, she must have been... Lee Israel must have been doing really good letters. At yeah. the end of the day, they must have been really good. Right, yeah. She it's actually Unbelievable. She actually had talent for writing. She just wasn't using it. In a legal way. <laughs> <laughs> to say the least. Uh, but, I mean, like, you know, she could have... She, she could have made like what she actually did into a fiction where she fantasized about what she was going to do you know put yeah, you know create great. a character who's in her situation yeah. and what would happen if someone were to do this and that sort of thing you know because like one of the problems uh, one of her biggest flaws uh, about the whole thing that she's doing is like very clearly this whole plan this whole scheme was a plan B. Like, there's certainly not something yeah. that could be, you know, a long-term thing, right? Yeah. So what she should have been doing is, like, thinking to herself, okay, I'm going to do this for right now, but I'm, I'm going to come up with a plan B in the meantime, yeah. you know, so to, that I can do to, you know, and stop doing this. You know, that's going to pay my bills, you know, kind of work towards this other thing, if that makes sense, you know? Mm-hmm. That, that was probably the stupidest thing and her biggest mistake was thinking that she could just keep getting away with these things and, and just kind of keep this status quo of, well, this is paying the bills. Yeah, you know? yeah. Um, well, and it seemed like, I don't know how much effort it took other than measuring margins, aging paper. Right. And, I mean, it seems like the writing part came really easy to her. So mm. maybe it was just really easy money. Well, I, I guess, I found thematically when I was talking out what this movie was about, which is essentially someone who is putting out their misinformation, putting out, you know, kind of poisoning the well, essentially, to where, like, people suddenly can't have to doubt whether or not something is true or not. In, in that sense... Thematically, I thought the movie was was relevant to today because I think like it's very clear that we have that going on today and have been going had that going on for the past couple of years, you know, yeah. where now there's so much doubt about truth and facts and um, like there's a scene where somebody actually like has information that suggests that one of these letters is not real but it's been authenticated so they're like well there's a chance that they're thinking you can see they're thinking in their head there's a chance that this is not real and i shouldn't sell it but there's a chance that it actually is so like i don't know what i'm trying to say i'm trying to articulate but basically just this notion that what is true is what is factual has been doubt has been cast yeah. overall makes the film kind of relevant but you know you said that the best thing about the movie was the performances so did you not feel the writing was all that uh, impressive you know it's just been a very personally it's just been a very weird three months for me mm. uh, being ill so right. it, that could be influencing my experience of this particular film mm. although with other films I've been very excited or been very sad or been very right. definite in my opinion whereas with this one I don't know maybe we just waited too long to see it sometimes that can happen mm. 
I liked it. I yeah. wasn't overly thrilled, but I really am glad that she got a nomination, that Richard E. Grant got a nomination. Yeah. Yeah. It certainly reintroduced me to Richard E. Grant. Mm-hmm. I forgot that he was actually born in Swaziland, which is a country within South Africa. Gotcha. And that was, you know, I got to hear an interview with him on NPR, uh-huh. Fresh Air, with Terry Gross. Yeah. And... It was really funny because while he was doing the interview with her, that's when he got nominated for a Golden Globe. And so he was so British about it (laughs) and was like, oh, my goodness, you know, my daughter's just tried to phone me (laughs) because she um, had Terry Gross had broken the news to him Uh unintentionally. She thought Uh he knew. Uh Her editor or whatever the title is of the person that listens in. Yeah, yeah, and producer. Yeah, right, the producer yeah, yeah. let yeah. her know. And then yeah. she was like, oh, we can talk about that. And he was like, wait, what? And it was very entertaining for sure. me. So I, I love these, I love the actors for sure yeah. as people. And I love their performances too. Uh, d- uh, but this was, n- did not live up to Mar- Mariel Heller's previous work for you, Diary of a Teenage Girl. Oh, I love Diary of a Teenage Girl because I thought it was so different. Mm-hmm. And it showed something different, didn't it? It showed mm-hmm. the nitty-gritty of a teenage girl. Yeah. So. I thought it was very good. Can you ever forgive me? Uh, but not great. I give it a 7 out of 10. The next film that we saw, uh, caught up with, was one of your most anticipated or excited films, Mary Queen of Scots, starring Saoirse Ronan and Margot Robbie. Margot Robbie plays Queen Elizabeth I, a role that Kate Blanchett got famous playing uh, in the past. And so Sir Ronan plays Mary, Queen of Scots, who historically, she comes back from France to Scotland. Don't ask me why she's in France. It's a long story. You can Wikipedia it. And, and you know, she's like a late teenager, early adult. And she ex- she is actually the rightful heir to the throne. And, of course, she's threatening her existence her presence English is very threatening to elizabeth the first and mm-hmm. it's about that relationship and of course all the the men around them who are advising uh and 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 such like that and of course the actual history of mary and elizabeth so shanna what did you think of this film i thought it was very good i thoroughly enjoyed the performances Mm-hmm. And I thought the story was very unique in that we haven't seen a depiction of this time where two women are essentially trying to make it work, but essentially at the end of the day they can't. Mm. And that is very interesting because of the love of their countries. Mm-hmm. And it almost feels like, oh, well, if we had to translate this to a story now, it would maybe be, you know, a woman in the military in some way fighting for her country. Mm. And I just thought that that was a really interesting uh, story. Mm. Two women fighting for the love of their country, trying to be good rulers, trying to be decent in their leadership. Mm-hmm. And, but they're also women at the end of the day and they want to enjoy things. They maybe do want to birth a child, maybe they don't. Mm-hmm. And all the complications that come between those two ideas. Mm-hmm. And so it was really interesting. I really liked, I really loved seeing the actresses. Mm-hmm. 
It is interesting. I think Mary was really working, trying to work towards coexistence as as rulers, even though she did clearly think that she was Elizabeth's superior. Okay, so the movie... Okay, so <laughs> where do I begin? I thought it was an interesting film. Mm. Seeing these two women in power and seeing all these men around these two women and and how these men essentially are are fucking things up for them all the time manipulating be it manipulating elizabeth or uh, and and, you know trying to tap into insecurities that she has or uh mary was historically known to be more impulsive and, and kind of followed her heart and so she wasn't necessarily a great strategist she so as a result the people that she would get involved with the the men that she would get involved with weren't necessarily the the smartest choices uh, let's say uh for her right and it was just kind of like these stepping stones that led to her eventual 19-year imprisonment and uh eventual execution uh, so i i think that 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 story is interesting it is, it is interesting seeing that play out uh, and I did think, like, the makeup and hair, I really under underestimated the makeup and hair in this film. I thought, oh, it's just another period movie. They'll probably have a little bit of makeup and all the, you know, the period costume and stuff. But no, the, the like, there's, like, I didn't know that Elizabeth went through a bout of smallpox. And so, like, there's a scene or two where Margot Robbie is just in this horrendous makeup all over her hands and her face. You know? Well, and they seem to carry the scarification of it yes. through. Yes, yes, the scars. The rest of the yes, uh, yes. You always see hints of it, and then like you have this cracked makeup in another scene. So that was all really, actually, very impressive and very well done. My issues with the movie come in with the fact that first of all, first and foremost, it really does sprint through history. Like I had to get a Wikipedia article up in order to really follow what's going on. Or there's there's months and years that feel like days and weeks in this movie, you know. Yeah. It just like really blows through time, uh, really kind of quickly, and I didn't necessarily have a good sense of how things were going on. And as such, they also trim a lot of the details about how things actually came about, like how one of the men in Mary's life he eventually gets executed. You know, how did that um, happen? And of course, there's a big mystery about his execution. Uh, he wasn't formally executed. Like, someone actually, assassinated is a better word, right? Yeah. You know, there's there's actually a lot that led up to that moment that's not depicted in the movie. There's, there's a lot of things that I felt like the, the movie was a little fast and loose. With Mary's actual execution, there's a lot of details that were not included in the movie that I think was inter- that would have been interesting to see, such as like executioners back then actually would kneel down before the subject and beg for their forgiveness before they would proceed with the execution. That's not in the movie, and that would have been interesting to see. All these kinds of things. And also, I feel like Elizabeth is not as well-developed, at least for the first half of the film, as Mary. Well, and I hear all the points that you're making. Yeah. But as someone that had to go through British history in school, yeah, there's just too much. Mm. There's too much information. Yeah. And it's kind of like, I feel like you have to look at these 
period piece movies mm -hmm. as an intro and if you want more information then go research perhaps yes there's some interesting things that could have been depicted but again like go look them up it's really it's really a story about mary queen mm. mary and queen elizabeth has had several movies she does not it doesn't yeah. need to be completely about her yeah it's it's really about Just, mary as far as i know none about this particular time in her rule um, mm. uh, as far as i know i mean i could be wrong but anyway that was mary queen of scots i myself give that a six out of ten i didn't i thought it was fine but not ex not ex extraordinary and of course uh, good work solid work of course by the leads did you have any final thoughts on it no all right, so let's move on to our main event, which is our review of Marvel's Captain Marvel. War is a universal language. I know a renegade soldier when I see one. Never occurred to me that one might come from above. Space invasion. Big car chase. Truth be told, I was ready to hang it up till I met you today. So you're not from around here. It's hard to explain. keep having these memories. I see flashes. I think I had a life here. But I can't tell if it's real. We have no idea what threats are out there. Can't do this alone. We need you. I'm not what you think I am. And that's from the trailer to Captain Marvel, starring Brie Larson, Jude Law, Samuel L. Jackson, Clark Gregg, and Gemma Chain, and many more. Captain Marvel basically takes us back into space, where we learn about Carol Danvers, or, or I should say, this character, Verse, learns about Carol Danvers, this person who she might have been in the past on Earth planet that she doesn't ever recall having visited and she is actually a a member of a team of Kree called Star Force and a very important weapon on that team that she is trying to hone and discipline under the tutelage of Jude Law's character and they of course come into conflict with the Skrulls which is an another alien race that are known for being able to shapeshift and infiltrate planets. So here's what we're going to do. First and foremost, as with any 
review of a film, we talk about first what the good is, what we liked about a movie. Then we talk about the bad, what we didn't like about a movie, what didn't work for us, and then move into spoilers. Before we go into spoilers, which I feel like is where most of this discussion is probably going to exist, we aren't going to speak to anything that you don't already see in the trailers of uh, Captain Marvel or in the advertising of Captain Marvel, okay? There's not a lot there, probably just talking about our general thoughts, good or bad, and we'll have a bigger spoiler discussion. So, Shanna, why don't you start us off, talk about what you liked about Captain Marvel. I loved Carol Danvers' candor mm. and straightforwardness. Mm-hmm. It's like what I want to be. Yeah. Even though she suffers from memory loss, she still knows herself well enough not to take crap from any condescending asshole. <laughs> <laughs> and people who don't believe in her, too. Mm. So she was a great addition to female superheroes. And I'm very excited. I loved seeing her on screen. Can we do another one? Mm-hmm. Uh, are we going to get another one? We will see her soon. Uh, but I mean for herself. I don't know. I want her to have her own. Mm. Samuel L. Jackson and Brie Larson's relationship on the screen was really awesome. I love that Nick Fury trusts Carol. I mean, we don't know if he's seen something like this before, but if he hasn't, I mean, wow, way to go, dude, <laughs> for having an open mind. <laughs> I like the soundtrack. Oh, really? The, the score, you mean? Oh, yeah. the soundtrack. Of course, it's not as great as Guardians of the Galaxy, the first one. The actual soundtrack, okay. <clears throat> yeah. yeah. But it was still really fun, and yeah. it was nice to see all these little callbacks to that time period. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Was there anything else you liked about the movie? Well, I'm just making sure that I don't spoil anything. Yeah, it, it is tough, because as, as, as hard as Marvel has been marketing this movie, it's amazing how little they've actually given away. So, everything that she does in this film is amazing in some way. Mm -hmm. And anything that happens in the film that you're not sure about, you know, in the end it all feels awesome and I want to go watch it again. Mm -hmm. We also, something that you didn't mention is that we got to do an SX experience. Is it SX? Oh, what do they call it? it? I don't think that's right. Um, So, we went to a Regal and they have a specific type of screen that's new they used to up they used to advertise and it's an upgrade what it basically is is you have these cloth walls that the screen like it'll project around you you'll have like the main focus straight ahead but it'll project some of these environments around you as well um i think it's called screen x and you're not missing out on anything on the sides i wish they had said that to us at first because i thought to myself well what if i have to look left and i miss something in front what if i have to look right but i have to look actually left you know it's not like that so i would have appreciated hearing that but you found it a pretty distracting experience yeah i don't think i would do it again i thought it was kind of interesting and cool like the whole idea is to make you feel more immersed in the film and of course part of me the whole time was wondering wow what's the actual aspect ratio of this movie like what's it actually going to look like on like tv or whatever well and it turns out that what they're doing is they're just stretching okay environment okay at least that's what it looks like it's actually not high quality visuals Mm. it's just well and and to an extent it it can't be too sharp because it's not on a screen right so it's on it's on like a cloth sort of like paneling with holes it's not even Mm -hmm. like straight up cloth it's got like punched 
holes in it. Yeah, yeah. I, I actually kind of thought it was interesting and cool. Obviously, this is not the kind of thing you would want for a movie like Can You Ever Forgive Me or Mary Queen Scots or whatever. Like, this very specific experiences this would be for, you know? I would, I would do... Here's what I would do, though. I would go and watch... Like, if it was Star Wars, I would go watch Star Wars normal. Yeah. And then I would try that and huh. see if it... You know, because maybe Force Awakens would have been really interesting on there. Mm. Is it Force Awakens with the red the red room? Uh, Last Jedi. Oh, sorry. Last Jedi. That yeah. would have been maybe very interesting because of the way they use landscapes and, and rooms, etc. Mm, maybe. I will say, uh, getting back to the movie, yeah. I, I walked away like wondering, okay, did I like this movie or did I love this movie? And I'll, I'll speak a little bit more to that in a second, but I will say that I think definitely did not have issues with the movie like there's um this is a very good movie brie larson is someone who i have in the past appreciated and really enjoyed and have followed her pretty closely since short term 12 and what she, in, in all her work it's been a pretty steady rise for her this past decade since Short Term 12 in, in uh, 2011, 2012, you know, with Con Skull Island and um, a room before that and Love everything kind of leading up to this, Captain Marvel. She is extremely charismatic. She has a wonderful smile. She knows how to use, she knows how to use her face. She has really great looks, like really great expressions. Well, I was going to say, she's so much more than just a smile. Of course, I'm not. I'm not okay. trying to say that she's not. I'm, I'm. I'm just saying that, like, her screen presence is is very charismatic, and um, she just holds your attention, right? I feel like she's one of those you could put her in anything, and I'd go watch her. Sure. Yeah. That's. I, I guess you know. That's kind of what I'm illustrating, uh, too, with uh, talking about what she's done in the past. So I think her and her character is great. There's a f several twists in this movie, so to speak, especially if you're familiar with comic lore that you think you know what's where this film is headed, especially long term, and you're left wondering, I don't know what the hell's going to happen. Like that totally did not do what I expected it to do. Uh, ben Mendelsohn is great in this movie as the uh, the the villain uh, scroll character, the main oh, yes, I loved scroll him character. So much. He's really good, and he gets some time in and out of the scroll makeup, which is probably good for him. I imagine that was a lot of hours under the makeup chair. Uh, of course, Sam Jackson. Sam Jackson. He's a legend, you know, and and seeing him in the '90s, kind of this precursor to his. His, I guess he's an agent of Shield, but you know, precursor to the Nick Fury in all caps days. You know what I mean? You know, agent, the agent of Shield to the director of Shield, precursor of the Avengers Protocol or whatever it's called, an Avengers Initiative is really interesting to see. You see Clark Gregg in digital de aging. Uh, I had stuff. a problem with that, but I did not have a problem with Samuel L. Jackson having a little bit of that. Yeah, I couldn't even tell that that was the case with Sam Jackson, in all honesty. So the cast is really good. Jude Law, Annette Benning, all of them are really good. The writing is really good. The special effects is, is fantastic. We, we should really just get into, okay, was there anything you didn't like about the movie? Or was there anything that didn't work for you, first of all? I don't think there's anything I can share that you know would not 
be spoilery. Okay. The only thing, the only comment I have is that you know Samuel L. Jackson looked better with anti-aging, whatever. Okay. Then <laughs> Clark Gregg. Clark Gregg yeah, did look Clark very Greg. obvious. He looks so stiff. Is is like something's not quite right. He looks yeah. a little glossy. So you know, some people are saying you know the anti-aging CGI is exceptional these at this point, and I'm like, oh, I, I can still kind of, I can still kind of tell. It's not awful, but it's like I can still tell. You know, yeah. <clears throat> there's something about it. It's not like 2008 X-Men Origins Wolverine Professor X de-aging, you know, or <laughs> that definitely looks CGI. But anyway, I just, I guess I was just, the thing, the only negative thing I could say is for me, and I wonder if this is different for women, but for me, like when I saw Wonder Woman, there were scenes like the No Man's Land sequence that like were clearly intended to be rousing. And I was roused, like I was stirred, I was excited seeing her get up and whatever, you know, stand or, you know, walk forward, march forward, whatever. But it was also I the lead up to them saying she can't do it. Sure, she like, did it, right? So. I, I felt like there were scenes in Captain Marvel that intended to be kind of like that, but I just was, it, it didn't stir me the same, quite at the same way. Like I didn't, I wasn't quite as roused as as previous movies let's say of this and um maybe that's part of the reason why i couldn't figure out if i liked the movie or if i loved it walking out of the theater we should say by the way at the time of recording uh this is the weekend of captain marvel's premiere and we are actually at the time that you're going to be hearing this we'll have just gotten back from comic-con in emerald city in seattle a week later so we'll probably talk about that in a future episode but just so you know the timing of this this is uh we're recording during captain marvel's uh premiere weekend and so we're pretty much like uh two days after we've seen the movie on on opening night and giving ourselves a little bit of time to reflect and i still kind of feel that way like yeah maybe maybe if i saw the movie a second time i might feel more strongly or differently you know but like things would settle a little bit more in me but i don't know uh, what do you what do you think? So I think it's just I think that I have figured out why it's it feels that way. Wonder Woman, you just have Wonder Woman. You don't have this preamble of several Batman movies, several oh Superman well, movies. It, like you don't have a lot compared to Marvel. Well, sure, you don't With have twenty Marvel, movies. Yeah. You have like three Iron Mans, two Captain Americas, two Thors, three Hulks technically. Like, and, and then a bunch of, like, team movies, too, you know? And then you have, finally, the superheroine film, you mm-hmm. know? Whereas, it, so I think it's there's maybe a bit of that. There's a lot of stuff. It's a very, it's not just a single movie. Everybody just saw Infinity War. Mm-hmm. And so they're kind of hoping for clues, right? Sure. Like, you want to see Captain Marvel as just herself. Yeah. But, like... Let's all be honest with each other. We're all we're all hoping that there's clues or something to help us with the you know show us that you're this amazing being that's going to help solve everything. That okay. Um, so you know you, you're saying that we we as the audience are she needs to prove to herself to us. And what I'm saying is that could be the case. But what I'm saying is there's like this dilution happening. There are scenes huh. in. 
Captain Marvel where I felt very empowered and was like, fuck yeah. Okay. You know, which So those is, are probably the scenes I'm talking about. I'm curious yeah. if they work differently on you as a woman than me as a man. Like, I would also say, I'm actually surprised to hear what you're saying because I would think this would be like, oh, finally, finally, after so many movies, we have a movie about a woman and look at her. Wonder Woman was everything. Mm-hmm. You know, she was the first one. And it was well of done. Of DC films, by and, the way. Well, yeah. But then Marvel, I mean, there's also this, there's a little bit of resentment that I feel against Marvel, mm. uh, Disney, because I'm like, well, why didn't you do it sooner? Mm. Why didn't you have a few? Why wasn't it included sooner? in the first two phases? Why did we have to go through, I don't know, 10 male films uh-huh. in what, what? What year are we on of this? Are we on 10 uh, years? This is the 11th year. Okay. So why did it take you so goddamn long? Uh-huh. Quite frankly, you deserve a smack in the face. So I'm trying not I'm, to be angry anymore and just take in, finally, we have one. I think it's important not to discount the fact that there's been female characters in the film. But they haven't been given you know, their own thing. Black Widow, Scarlet Witch, uh, Wasp, fine. all of them have, have come along. So I don't, I, I don't want to be completely unfair and, and not acknowledge those characters. But let's be honest... They've just been side characters to this point. They haven't been their own. And they're only their own. They haven't had they a solo ha- film. They're only their own if they have a solo film. And hell, you're you're always championing Gamora. You're always championing Gamora. Well, yeah. Right? You know? Because she's fucking killer. Okay? But what I'm saying is that's maybe why we're having a bit of a push pull feeling. Okay. Because she's so Captain Marvel's so connected to everyone. And everything else. We need to get into spoilers. Um, let's. So from here on out, uh, check your timestamp to if you haven't seen the movie to skip ahead to film faves because we're going to talk spoilers of which there's a lot for Captain Marvel right now. Are are they all gone? Is everybody gone? <laughs> you haven't you haven't done that for a while. I love that. <laughs> okay, so everybody's had an opportunity to skip ahead. <clears throat> So here's here's what happens in the movie. We discover that this character Verse, who's a part of Star Force, is actually originally a pilot from Earth. She who had a friend, Monica Rambo, Maria Rambo, Rambo, not R A M B O by the way, <laughs> the more um, French ver- spelling of Rambo. So Maria Rambo, who has a daughter named Monica Rambo, which all comic beat geeks, all Marvel zombies. No, is actually of a superhero from the 80s who grew, whose name is Photon and taken on a bunch of other titles. Anyway, she's friends with this person. She also was kind of, not tutored, but she had this person she looked up to, played by Annette Benning, right? And this, this character had a mission, and Carol Danvers volunteered to go help on this mission because they would help save lives, Right? Through this mission, we learn that Annette Bain's character is actually Kree, which is an alien race, um, and she has a device that was going to help end all wars throughout the galaxy, right? And we learn... She had a device that was going to end all wars across the galaxy. Yeah? Why are you repeating what I said? I'm sorry. I'm just realizing that she's going to end Infinity War. Okay. Because she... Sorry. Yes. <laughs> Just clicked. <laughs> so, so we also learn that Verz, 
<laughs> I, I hate that name, Verse. I want to call her Captain Marvel, even though she never calls herself Captain Marvel in the movie. Brie Larson's character, who has been under the tutelage of Jude Law's character, the leader of the Star Force team, who's fighting off the scrolls, it turns out that actually Jude Law's character is the villain, right? And then the Kree are actually the villain, which is interesting because in the comics, apparently Star Force is a villainous team. Oh, shame. So they're initially presented as actually a team of intergalactic heroes, Kree heroes, and we actually learn, no, actually, what you know is wrong. The Kree are actually the villains, and they're actually going through and hunting down the, the, this alien race um, called the Scrolls, who are now refugees throughout the galaxy, and they're looking for places to hide. They're not necessarily trying to infiltrate planets, they're looking for places to hide so they can stay alive, basically, um, and hide from the Kree, right? And it turns out Jude Law was trying to kill Annette Benning's Kree character, and Carol Danvers decides to try to destroy the device. She shoots it, it blows up, giving her her powers as it does in the comics she has become the device that'll end all wars exactly this is so goddamn exciting jude law decides to take her, uh, to capture her take her away and she doesn't, they don't brainwash her but they actually basically try to to take on her, take control of her and, and keep her close but also t- keep her in control right because she has this little thing in her neck that it's suggested originally it's supposed to help her, but we actually learn it's actually inhibiting her, right? Yeah. Right? All of this is controlled by the Supreme Intelligence, who is, by the way, like, Kree leader. In the comics, it's basically a green head with, like, a bunch of tentacles coming out of it, and they actually adapt that in this movie differently, whereas, like, you don't see that. You see someone you trust, basically. It takes the form of someone you trust. Wow. Okay, so first of all, we haven't even gotten to the end of the movie or anything, but let's mine through, like, what are your thoughts about these revelations where, where we learn that Kree's actually not so great, Scrolls are actually the good guys, and Carol Danvers decides to help the Scrolls get away. I love the concept of refugees being mm-hmm. made to look like the bad guy mm. and they're actually not uh-huh. they're just refugees they're just looking to live a life okay they do not want much uh-huh. and i love that in this time i also have to say i really love the skull's sense of humor what was ben Mendelssohn? i really love that you know you see them mm-hmm. you know trying to get into her mind trying to figure out you know this promise that was given to them because they're trying to find the location of this this lab that yeah. that the Annette Benning character had, right? Yeah. Um, and you think that they're 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 trying to get in her head to get to some uh, mola, uh, what do you call it? Uh, not mulligan. Trying to get to some device, you know, for bad reasons. Yeah. And and the way he does it is really funny because they're going through all these different memories of Carol's and they're like, oh yeah, that's like wait 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 what what is that? <laughs> right. It's just, who is that? Yeah. This doesn't look right. And it's just really hilarious commentary. And then yeah. it, it turns out he's a good guy, you know? So I really like that. That was a big surprise. And for me, like, okay, I'm watching this, right? And I'm thinking, oh, you know, they mentioned how the scrolls infiltrate planets. I'm like, dude, they are, they are planting the seeds right now 
for Secret Invasion, which is a big, huge crossover in 2008-ish where we learn that several of our superheroes are actually scrolls. I'm like, this is going to be the next phase after Endgame, right? <laughs> you think and you know what you're talking about. Where they're going to go with this. This is how Marvel's going to bring back the Fantastic Four under their own studio and their ownership. And, you know, because the scrolls are tied closely to Fantastic Four. And it's like, oh my God, this is amazing. And it doesn't do that at all. You learn, wait, 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 I'm, I'm supposed to, like, feel for them? Wait, the scrolls are good guys? Like, how are we going to, what? You know, like, it's so counter to lore, uh, Marvel lore of what the scrolls are, that really turns things on its head and turns expectations on its head, and you're just like, I don't know what the hell is going to happen here on out, you know? Mm-hmm. I liked that they included a few things that women have to deal with that are just so demeaning and like men don't have to deal with this shit like Like for instance the motorbiker that drives up Mm -hmm. and he likes the look of carol danvers and he says oh come on smile for me smile for me and it really is just for your own enjoyment sir and it's like Mm -hmm. i am not like she is not an object for you to Mm -hmm. whatever so when we get to jude law and her fighting Mm -hmm. and there's this moment where he realizes that she knows her power she's in complete and utter control and probably had been the entire time really Mm. he tries to swing things around and he starts talking bullshit like how proud he is of her Mm. this is the moment let's fight fist to fist and i was like please don't fall for it please don't fall for his crap and she doesn't, and she just... Well, he was he was trying to say, like, something about, like, you know, put down the energy or, you know, uh, basically saying, don't use your powers, but prove that you're... he's been telling her that yeah. the entire time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because his excuse is, you don't control your powers. Well, he's basically saying, prove that you're my equal. And it's like, well, actually, I'm better than you. Right. And pff, shut the fuck up. So right. I really enjoyed... That. I also enjoyed this revelation of her, this discovery of herself that she had, you know, her power all along and could freely use it and was in control. You know, surprise, surprise, it's emotion that gives women their power. Mm. And, you know, Wonder Woman had that, Captain Marvel has that. Mm. And, and so I think there's this wonderful theme that's coming, that's joining, if you try to think about it, women through the centuries have been told that they're so emotional so it's like oh well this is a fault of ours but in actual fact it can be something very useful and powerful for us i could so I, like, I could see that coming when from the very beginning he's yeah. like try not to get emotional use your mind you know i was like well what are women most known for <laughs> you know not no they're not new, known for being in, intellectually and reasoning they're known for their emotions right although That's, i will tell you that there are intellectual reasoning of course i'm just saying like like this is one of the most defining quality of women and it's not necessarily their flaw right and i was yeah. like I, I totally foresaw this is actually their power going to be their her strength right yeah yeah so you had asked about what I thought about that, and I, I thought it was, I really liked, you know, the revelations and the, just, mm. you know, the truth coming out. It added something different to the storyline, mm. you know. Let's talk a little bit about the the way 
that it goes back and tells time with its setting. You never see a date on screen. All you have really are songs. You had mentioned the soundtrack. The soundtrack is well, all and then technology much, where technology is sure, but I, especially the songs. The songs are all '90s songs, and I believe they are all female-led bands throughout. The, you have like Garbage. You have what? Um, gosh, they used everything but Meredith Brooks' "Bitch," which I would not have been surprised if that movie, that they song showed up too. They could have just had it in the background yeah. playing softly. Um, you did have Nirvana though. <laughs> Uh, yeah, in there. that was fun. You know, uh, w- did that all work for you, or was that too on the nose for you? Or no, I was worried that it would be, but it wasn't. It was actually quite enjoyable. Mm. I, the only thing I would have liked to have seen, and I don't know where this falls in time, but I would have liked to have seen like heard like Hot Topic or uh, what is the other? That would one? be much later. By what? Is, oh, it was much later. Yeah, yeah. Oh God, damn it! That I, would have made me so happy. If I remember correctly, that what? album. She's talking about an album by La Tigra, um, which is a Kathleen Hanna band. Um, I believe that came out in the year two thousand. I, I I don't know. Maybe I needed some more of that. Hmm. But you're saying it came in the two thousand. I believe so. I I have to check my CD, but hmm. it was definitely not necessarily a quote unquote nineties album. Okay. Well, I've, yeah, I didn't think it was on the nose. I, you know, we haven't talked about Kelly Sue DeConnick. Uh, she has a cameo. I'm sure there's other people that I don't know that's, that make a cameo in the film. But it's a blink and you'll miss it cameo with yeah. Kelly. You, know? uh, you want to segue to cameos, let's talk about, let's talk about Stanley. Uh, yeah. He has a cameo and there's also, they also do something quite lovely for him that I didn't know going in they were going yeah. to do. And so, like, I haven't... I, I, I'm glad this is in the spoiler section because I wouldn't necessarily, like, announce it because it was a nice surprise. Why don't you talk a little bit about that? Oh, and... me tearing up right now. I should talk about it. Yeah. How did <laughs> so, that hit you? Well, and, and describe what it was. See, what we're used to seeing before a Marvel movie starts is that beautiful little camera work that goes between the three-dimensional word Marvel um, and they pro- it's kind of like they're projecting imagery from the previous films of all the different heroes on there. I think sometimes they show the villains. I don't know. I can't remember. No, it's the um, heroes. It's okay. the Avengers, yeah. And it's very, it, it's a lot of fun because it's gone from the comic book pages turning to this. I think this is like maybe two years old, this format. I feel like maybe it's a, a little year. older, but anyway. Oh, okay. But what they did instead is they did it dedicated to Stan Lee. And what, what did you see? I'm trying not to get emotional. <laughs> so what they do is they show every Stanley cameo over yeah. the past 10 years. And you're getting emotional now. You were getting emotional during it. And I was like, <laughs> I was like was watching sorry. it like, oh my gosh, wow. And then it wasn't until I looked over at you to see, I don't know, I looked over at you and you were crying. And I started crying. <laughs> uh, I started getting a little flicklumped. Um, and and choked up well, too. Well, because they didn't they say thank you, Stanley. Afterwards, after, that, after yes. they show that little piece. Yes, afterwards. And right. it was like, oh my god, thank you. <laughs> yeah, it's extremely. Because we wouldn't have any of it without. Yeah, you know, it's extremely emotional. Without and then, him. Okay, so that was very moving. But then you have the actual cameo. Oh, and that was so wonderful. So, 
Captain Marvel is about to. You've seen it in the at the trailer that she's gonna kick an old lady's ass. Yeah. And so you know it's coming. Yeah. But all of a sudden you hear this mumbling and you recognize the voice and you're like, is that him? Yeah. And he's hiding behind a script essentially. Yes. So let me speak to this because this okay. didn't click with you. Okay. He's reading the script to Mallrats, which is a movie in the mid nineties that he appeared in. And so he's rehearsing his, one of his lines in that script and he has it in front of his face at first. It's red cover says Mallrats. And well, that looks a, like the way Brie Larson pulls that down just before she pulls it down it looks like she's gonna kick his ass and i'm like no way that would be so bad yeah <laughs> and, yeah and then she looks at him and he's smiling with his gorgeous freaking smile yeah that he does you yeah. know with his little mustache that kind of it almost is like he sparkles when he smiles and it's been like that you know we saw him on stage at ecc it yeah. was like a and also to comic con yeah. and you see it in the film and it's like i'm so glad they got like he looked like a little boy, you know, like just a yeah. sweet little boy. And she gives him a knowing look. <laughs> yeah, and know? she's like, she gives him like this nod, and it's yeah. like, I know, <laughs> we, I know the secret, you know. Um, and that may secret. or may not be his last cameo. I know they shot a whole bunch of cameos for him a year or two ago. Mm. I don't know how far out they went. So, but like, this is definitely one of the last, if not the last. Cameo. Well, and I know that in Deadpool two, we just saw a huge graffiti mural. Mural? Mural uh, of him. So I, I don't know if that was because that. he wasn't interested or... I don't even remember that. But at any rate, what else do we need to mine about this movie? We need to mine how Nick Fury becomes like a melted little I see a kitty and I'm just going to be like a completely different little person. That was fucking funny. I love that. Now the cat who is all awesome. over the advertising. I, I think the cat was intended to be a scene stealer. I'm not sure that I necessarily feel that it reached that level. In fact, like the cat's revealed to be an actual like alien creature. And when that alien. happened, yeah. I, I was like, what the fuck? Well, it almost felt like Star Wars, you know, where the, in uh, Force Awakens, where people are getting mauled by that big tentacle creature. Yeah, yeah, which so, Han Solo has yeah. captured in accident. It feels suffering. a little bit like that, but it was really funny at the same time. Uh, yeah. So, okay, so let's get to the end of the movie and really discuss like where this movie leaves us before well, we finish up. I just wanted to at least say the rousing moments. Yeah. When Captain Marvel like just soars through a ship. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. That was amazing and totally appropriate for this for the Marvel universe. Okay. And the way that she goes up to oh what is his name who Jude Law's character or what no, Judge oh Ronan the, <laughs> Ronan the Accuser Ronan the Accuser who was a villain just to capture yes. um, a villain in uh, Guardians of the Galaxy and the way she takes her power in her fists and punches her fists together it feels like a 90s thing to do like you want to fight with me you want a knuckle sandwich mm -hmm. or whatever and he just leaves. Yeah. Like he retreats. Yeah. That was amazing. Mm. I love that part. Mm. So. Question is like, why didn't they come back to Earth, or did they know that she was somewhere else in the galaxy and try finding her else out there? And well, also, what happened to his face? Because in Guardians of the Galaxy, he has black on his face. In this movie, he does not. Well, there, he's going through some sort of ceremony, so it's not like a scar or something. It's actual paint that they're putting on him. Oh well, then what the heck is that about? Well, what is his race? 
He's Cree. Okay, well, he, he was our introduction to the Cree. He gets really species. He gets really um, purist about the Cree. Yeah. Or something. Yeah. And so something must have happened in between uh-huh. that led him down that path. And to work for Thanos. Yeah. You know, so we don't know like what something happened. And, it and same thing with Jumon Honsu. He he's one of the Star Force characters. He of course we first meet that character in Guardians of the Galaxy. He gets killed by Star Lord, if I remember correctly, or Drax, one of the two. And he's got like stuff in his head in that movie, like mechan- like machinery in his head. Not the case in this one. And I was expecting like this movie to try to to try to tie and make sense of like. How these characters came to be what they were. How does Jamon Hong Su end up being the lackey of Ronan the Accuser? The movie doesn't do that. You're kind of left like with, well, apparently somehow in the next 14 years or 10 years, that happened. Does that bother you? It was surprising. And maybe it's one of those things where like Marvel is upsetting expectations. But know, I also but... feel like it's not his movie. And it doesn't have to be his movie, movie to explain these things. But I feel like it would just distract from her. I don't know. Not necessarily. But at any rate, so that doesn't happen. What I was trying to get to. Oh, the cat has the Tesseract. The whole thing, one of the things that everybody's been after all this time, it turns out, is the Tesseract. So immediately I'm like, wait a minute. Where's the Tesseract when we first hear about it? Like when we first are introduced to the Tesseract, which is... The blue square. Where is that in the Marvel series? Is it on Asgard? Like, it's been too long. I remember seeing it with Loki. Okay. I don't remember how Loki got it. Okay. So, the question is, how does it get from A to B, right? Because we see the cat has it, and the cat, in the post credit scene, barfs up the Tesseract cube, right? Well, it, did uh, Red Skull have it at one point? That's right. Okay. That's right. But that's also way before the time, right? Because isn't Red Skull that's like from distant World past, War I? right? World War Two. Two. Okay. Right. So how the fuck <laughs> did this happen, right? Like, there's there's definitely well, questions. And then the Asgardians eventually take it to the Collector, right? Uh, yes, I think that's accurate. The Warriors Three. See, you're putting things together for me. So the question is, how did this? How do these things come together, right? And it doesn't do. It just leaves some more questions for me than answers. So Captain Marvel, like we're, a lot of people were wondering, well, where the fuck has Captain Marvel been all this time, you know? And we learned that Captain Marvel is out on the other end of the galaxy, apparently, presumably still helping the scrolls. Although it's twenty years, who knows if she's still. The helping thing the is, scrolls. she could have been distracted by new missions. Yeah. Right. Right. And then we have a post-credit scene or a mid-credit scene that actually segues to Avengers Endgame, where somehow the existing Avengers have gotten the pager that um, Nick Fury has that that Carol Danvers helped modify yeah. for him to so that she he could page her should he ever actually need her for an emergency. So the Avengers have this, and the the pager shuts off. And they're like, what happened to it? Why is it shut off? And the Carol got answered. <laughs> Carol appears. Right? Yeah. She's like, where's Fury? And it cuts off. So did you have any thoughts about any of this? 
I absolutely loved how Black Widow was like, we need to know who's on the other end of that and you need to tell me so that I can know. And then she's right there and I was like, oh, this is fun. You know, it felt like a moment like, uh, you know, like from Infinity War where it's Okoya and mm -hmm. Black Widow saying that Scarlet Witch is not alone. Yeah, so yeah. I don't know. It was just, maybe there's just too few moments like that in the Marvel Universe and I'm taking whatever they'll give me. Uh. But it was very exciting. I, I liked how it ended because it brought her back. Yeah. You know, it brought her to where we all we all are. Mm. And are we a month away from that movie or It's in April. It's in April? Yeah. Holy shit, we're almost there. Yeah, this we is will very exciting. We will be reviewing it in three episodes. Yeah, so I like that. I like the the cat puking up the Tesseract. There's no way your body should be holding on to that. I don't care if you're celestial. Yeah, I quite liked how they brought it home. So that was good. Well, we should wrap up. We're going long on this review of Captain Marvel, surprisingly. Because um, she's awesome. Final thoughts? I love this film. I think talking about it makes me love it even more. Okay. And what would you give it out of 10? Maybe an 8. Okay. I would give it a 7 out of 10, pending a rewatch. I'm curious if my feelings change one more direction or another. But that's our review of Captain Marvel. What did you think of Captain Marvel? Email us at thegibsonreview at gmail.com. Now it's time for Film Faves. Film Faves is where we talk about our respective lists of our 12 favorite movies around a particular topic. Uh, the idea has been inspired by a former feature on the blog, The Gibson Review, wherein I did the same thing, usually marching backwards through time, year by year. We typically do that, but sometimes we take a break. In our last episode, we went back to a, a year-long series where we're counting down the best of the decade, our favorites of the decade, I should say. This episode, we're coming back to our year-by-year -year countdown with the year 1988. Um, I will say, first of all, uh, 1989 was such a great year that there were actually movies that I didn't realize were released in the United States in 1989 that would have been on my list that I forgot. And probably the same for you, anime movies. Anime, some of the best anime films came out in the States in 1989, and we completely overlooked it. Uh, We're great, such horrible people. Grave of the Fireflies, Akira, Miyazaki uh, movies, like, uh, what is it? My Neighbor Totoro? Uh, I want to say My Neighbor Totoro, oh, okay. actually. You know, <laughs> and completely missed them. So uh, I think that also kind of affected our list for 1988. 1988 was a hard year. So... We really had a hard time finding a lot of favorites, a whole dozen of favorites. So what we did was we did a joint list for this episode of 1988. And what we'll do is we'll try, not only is this going to give you an idea of our tastes, every list gives you a little bit of our tastes and what our passions are in film, but also we try to help you discover films you haven't seen or heard of before. And to that end, we, we try to point you in the direction of what streaming platforms they're available on. Chiefly, we focus on Netflix, HBO Now, Amazon Prime, and Hulu. Okay, so we will do that in, in this case as well. But first of all, let's talk a little bit about the year 1989, or 1988. First of all, can you guess what the highest grossing movie of the year was? Was it Die Hard? No, Aww. no, Die Hard, believe it or not, was number nine. Oh, it hit the top ten, but it was number nine at $141.2 million. What is this nonsense? I know, yeah, 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 you will not believe this. Do you want to take another guess? No, I don't think I have it. Okay, so 
I'll tell you, Die Hard was number nine. Working Girl, which you didn't get to see and catch up with, unfortunately, uh, was before that, 102. Big was um, number eight. Tom Cruise's film Cocktail, which is not well favored, but was really popular back then for this uh, for a Beach Boys song, Kokomo. That was seven. Rambo 3, of all movies, was number six. The comedy with Arnold Schwarzenegger and Danny DeVito, Twins, by Ivan Reitman, was number five. Crocodile Dundee 2 was number four. Coming to America was number three. Who Framed Roger Rabbit was number two at $329.8 million. The movie that beat it was Rain Man at $354.8 million. A movie that if it were released today, there's no way in hell it would be the highest grossing movie of the year. No, that's really funny. Isn't that fascinating? Mm. Okay, so do you know what movie was best picture of the year? Was it Rain Man? It actually was Rain Man, yeah. Best director, best actor, all Rain Man. Yeah, yeah. Fascinating, hey? Do you know, Shanna, do you know? This is what we say to our dog. Did you know? <laughs> That's really funny. Um, no, do you know what Rihanna and Haley Joel Osment and Michael Sarah and Mae Whitman and Rupert Grint from the Harry Potter series they all have in common? Yes, they were all born in 1988, uh, along with Alicia Vikander, who's Tomb Raider now, and Supergirl's but Melissa Benoist. Rumor Willis, Bruce Willis's daughter, all all these people were born in that in that year. So interesting, not as fascinating a year as 1989, I think, but pretty interesting year. Shanna, first of all, uh, what are your thoughts on 1988, and can you get us started with our number twelve favorite? My thoughts are they were, uh, you know, this seemed to be a really com- a comedic year mm. and action year, mm. so a lot of fun stuff and a lot of stuff that I didn't get to see. So, I'll start off with our number 12, which is Bill Durham. This is starring Kevin Costner, Susan Sarandon, and Tim Tim Robbins, just to name a few. Mm -hmm. So, what's happening in this story is that Susan Sarandon is a huge baseball fan, Mm -hmm. massive baseball fan. And every season, she picks someone who she's going to have an affair with. She's going to have right. a good time. Yeah. And she essentially, through lovemaking, makes them a better player. Supposedly, right? Yeah, supposedly. Yeah. I don't know how true her technique is. Yeah. Like, if it was true, like, people would be scrambling to be chosen by her, right? Right, yeah. And she gets to choose them. So it's this really interesting... This really interesting se- sexual idea. power that yeah, she has. it's... Yeah. You know, and I think she's like the most attractive thing on screen. I just love how she attracts. She has this wonderful sexuality to her. Yes, right. And that is considered by most to be the best baseball film of all time. Of course, we obviously have not seen Field of Dreams. (laughs) I was going to say we, of course, favor that film. Um, uh, So our number eleven film is one that I grew up loving. It's called The Great Outdoors, and it stars Dan Aykroyd and John Candy, as well as Annette Benning is one of the wives. Oh, in so fun. Uh, yes, it's a very silly movie about these two families. One is more of an average Joe family, and the other is more of a, a well, 
well-off family. I believe they're brothers, if I remember correctly. They come together. They, they have this tradition of coming together in the woods and having this vacation together, right? For John Candy, it's about reconnecting with nature and the simpler things of life. And, and you could tell that Dan Aykroyd is the kind of character that grow into a glamper over time. Oh, yeah. You know, it's, all, it's, it's like a vacation without the, being away from everything. He's a little bit snobby. But anyway, there's a bunch of hilarious set pieces in this movie. You have also hilarious animals. I remember the talking raccoons. They don't like literally talk, but they have subtitles of them talking about these people's garbage is being hilarious. I remember Bart the Bear being um, a point of hilarity as well. What happens with Bart the Bear near the end of the movie when the bear raids the cabin and stuff uh it's not i wouldn't say it's necessarily a great film it's not a film that falls under classic status but it is a movie that's always kind of stuck to my ribs as uh as something that being a, a child who grew up and saw john candy loving john candy this is definitely one of the 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 top three john candy movies for me of um, just performances and, and roles that i always really loved and enjoyed uh, did you have any thoughts on great outdoors you know, I know we watched it a couple of years ago. We got it in a DVD pack with Uckleback as well. Mm-hmm. That was the only way we could get Uckleback. Yeah. Um, I love John Candy. I don't think I. I don't think that this movie was for me. But I'd be curious to revisit it and see how I feel. Yeah, this was one of uh, when we combined lists, we had a bunch that we agreed on completely, and then our own individual takes. And so the bottom of the list definitely kind of falls under under that. And Great Outdoors is one of those. Anyway, what's what's our number ten favorite film? Our number ten is Scrooge, starring Bill Murray, Karen Allen, John Glover, John Forsythe. Who else have we got here? Carol oh, Kane. Yeah, Carol Kane. There's a lot of people in that there movie. There are. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's too many to mention. I'm looking through it now, and I'm like, this is too much work. So <laughs> <laughs> this is, you know, everybody knows about the tale of Scrooge and a Christmas the Christmas Carol. The Christmas Carol. Mm-hmm. You know, you've got a selfish prick. In this case, he's a television executive, so that's very interesting. Right. And, of course, he's going to learn his lessons on Christmas Eve. Yeah, yeah, I remember seeing that, and it was very interesting take on that, all the different ghosts in it. Yeah, and of course, like, who isn't a fan of Bill Murray? I, I don't know who you are. I remember the different programming he had really stuck, uh, made an impression, because it's, like, really horrific programming, too. I don't know <laughs> if you remember that not montage of upcoming programs on this channel. Oh, uh, yeah, and it's really satirical. Um, yeah, it, it's um, sadistic. Like you have like one in particular where someone is driving along and someone comes up and like a gun comes out of the car oh and shoots them on the highway. That kind of thing. It's really dark shit, you know. And I remember, <laughs> um, I can't remember his name, but the lead of the New York Dolls, a, a band from the '70s, a kind of a, a, a glam like transvestite band of the '70s. He stars as a, one of the ghosts. He plays in a he, like rides a taxi. Yeah, these were all different characters that stood out to me. And, and of course, the song at the end of the movie, too. Put a little love in your heart or something like that. Oh, that's funny. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, that's a, that's a good pick. That's a fun uh, movie to go back to. A good holiday movie. Uh, the next film on our list is... Uh, I'm going to cover the lead us on the next two. 
Uh, Young Guns is the next film of a very much an 80s Western stylized, trying to capture really the, the MTV teens, the youth market there. You have um, this story about Billy the Kid with a huge cast that includes Emilio Estevez, Kiefer Sutherland, Lou Diamond Phillips. To me, this is the Lou Diamond Phillips role, like Chavez. I always will remember and love Lou Diamond Phillips as Chavez, um, who's a Native American part of uh, the kids' gang. It actually is. If you go through the cast list, there's a huge, huge list of recognizable names in it. And it always kind of worked for me. It's not it's not one of the ten greatest westerns of all time, but it's also not like one of the ten worst westerns of all time either. Um, it still works for me. It's got a soundtrack by John by Bon Jovi, who is very much of the of the 80s the late 80s you know <laughs> and so there might be a little bit of a cheese factor with it and i think it was bradley whitford if i remember correctly plays the guy who comes upon this old hundred year old man who claims to be billy the kid which is completely contrary to billy the kid's legend because it legendary like he was killed by pat garrett in his 20s or something like that so i was like how could this guy claim to be the billy the kid and he tells the story um, of um, him and the gang and i don't know i, I think it's That's a lot of fun i've always really enjoyed young guns uh, mm-hmm. i know you're not a western uh, fan per se but, but you do make it sound interesting it is fun yeah so and then our next film our number eight film uh, again, falls under, if you listen to past episodes, I've talked about the sequel that I always find is fun. And that's no exception here. Crocodile Dundee 2. Of course, a uh, sequel to the hit Crocodile Dundee film, I think from 84 or 85, about Paul Hogan, who is Crocodile Dundee, the fish out of water from Australia brought to New York. Uh, this time, he takes his girlfriend and goes to Australia they go in hiding from a Columbia, I believe it's like a Colombian drug lord oh or whatever, who has like someone sends pictures of what this drug lord has done. That's going to obviously be evidence to put him in jail. And he sent, sends this evidence, these pictures to Dundee's girlfriend in New York. Cause she's a reporter. Right. And so like they're after her, Right. And so Dundee whisks her away back to Australia. So they're on familiar land for him. And and if they come for them, he's going to be able to take care of them. I love this movie. A lot of people like think it's inferior to the first one. But I always thought this one was more fun. It had more personality to it. I love seeing the Outback and them in the Outback and the Aborigines and the interactions with the Aborigines and stuff. I really enjoy this movie. I just love the ridiculous nonsense he's doing in New York that he would never get away with now. Like the fishing yeah. scene in yes. the opening with the tile sequence? Yeah, the Statue of Liberty right. with bombs. Right. So it's, yeah. wait a second. There's yeah. just, and the police come and they're just, ah, it's just Dundee. Right. Like, no, <laughs> no, there's no way. Like he would get written up so much. Yeah, this film's just lovable is what it is. It's just so, it's just fun, you know? So anyway, love that movie. Shanna, what's our number seven favorite uh, film where we start to really get into where our lists overlapped? Our number seven is Rain Man, and that's dust starring Dustin Hoffman, Tom Cruise, Valeria Galino. Uh, Valeria also... Galino, yes. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we've got a couple of other people. 
like Bo- Bonnie Hunt is in there for a bit. Oh wow! Yeah, you've got. That's Beth right. Bond. She plays like the waitress or something. Yeah, and then you got uh, just a bunch of people. This, you know, it's very, it's a very fun story. It's got uh, Tom Cruise is this yuppie that does well, but then doesn't do well. You know, like any salesman essentially. Well, he's he's having a hard time. Right? Yeah. Something about his car business is struggling. Yeah, but his car business also doesn't seem legal somehow. Something about it feels off. Yeah, a little fuzzy. So he is trying to make a quick buck. Mm -hmm. And so he finds out, uh, you know, his father dies and the fortune has been left. He he doesn't have a good relationship with his father, to be clear. He doesn't have a good relationship with his father. And he finds out that his father has left the fortune to his his brother that he didn't know about, his brother Raymond. Right. And just a little bit to, to Tom Cruise, Charlie. Right. And so eventually what happens is Tom Cruise gets it in his head that, oh, well, I'm just going to take my brother. I'm going to look after my brother. And I'm, I, going I'm to... entitled to that money. Yeah. And that's how it's going to happen. And mm-hmm. he does this hard, you know, he's not prepared to look after his brother because his brother is autistic. Yes. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, if you're not, if you have not been exposed to that in any shape or form, you're not going to know anything and you're not going to understand. Well, it constantly deters it. his life too, yeah. right? It, it literally forces him to slow down. Right? And it's great mm-hmm. because it's like, it's total American life, right? Go, mm-hmm. go, 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 go. Yeah. And especially then in the now 80s. you have to slow down. Well, yeah. it's like that too now. So I really enjoy this. There's a lot of comedic moments. There's a lot of like, oh you ignorant person you you know (laughs) because you know there's such a bigger light on autism now that we're aware of so many more things involved with that so seeing a film where you know maybe nobody knew not many people knew about autism and Mm -hmm. like okay well this is actually what it might be like Mm -hmm. is very interesting yeah and i'm looking at what was nominated for best picture uh and i would say out of the movies i've seen which i've seen most of them except the accidental tourist yeah this is probably the better film um of them so it's it's well deserved as the best uh, film of 1988 um oh by the way did we mention that uh rain man is available on amazon prime and hulu well now we did and in case we didn't before bull durham is also available on prime and netflix the next film that is on our list is not available to stream you have to rent it if anything on amazon it is beetlejuice starring of course uh, michael keaton directed by of course tim burton i think this was his second film if i'm not mistaken second or third film as the ghost with the most right gina davis and alec baldwin a young alec baldwin (laughs) Right, star is a married couple who die suddenly, but they're chained to their house as ghosts, and they see because that, that's how it works, I believe. Right, and um, they see that a family is about to move in, a bunch of yuppies, you know, just really rich bitch type family. Catherine O'Hara plays the the matriarch of the uh, family. I Jeffrey, love that woman so much. <laughs> she's oh such a bitch gosh. in it. I love um, it. Jeffrey She's so Jones is, of course, the father of the family. Winona Ryder, who's probably around a teen at this point, um, plays the daughter. Lydia, who befriends the ghosts. The couple wants the family out of the house, so they decide to, against best advice, they decide to enlist the help of Michael Keaton's title character to wreak havoc on the family. Shannon, did you have any thoughts about this film? I absolutely love this film. It is 
You know, my two favorite Halloween films are that I make Halloween films are Hocus Pocus and Beetlejuice. Mm. And I remember seeing it the first time when I was really young, and I was like, "What the hell is this? This is because it's so different. It doesn't it follow the norm, right? Yeah, and it's talking about death." Yeah. And it's like, oh, yeah. well, death's not so scary anymore. It looks really interesting, actually. Right. <laughs> so. Yeah, yeah. There's so many colorful characters in the afterlife. Oh, my gosh, yes. And just, you know, any concepts of what the afterlife might look like is always a fun idea, I think, yeah. unless it's just horror. So, you know, this this was really fun. I grew up with this movie. It was a favorite of mine for sure as a kid. I loved it. I watched the cartoon series that came afterwards. Yeah, I was going to say, I watched the cartoon Mm -hmm. series too. Loved it. Oh, by the way, the sandworms were iconic for me. Um, Terrifying things. But I look back as an adult and I'm like, wow, that's it. I really wish we got to explore more of this or there was more to this movie. But what we got is is, uh, quite enjoyable and I, I do enjoy and love Beetlejuice as well. Mm-hmm. So, Shannon, what is our next favorite film? Our fifth favorite film of 1988. Our fifth favorite film is Big, and that stars Tom Hanks, Elizabeth Perkins, who's from, oh, you know, yeah. some people might know her from Weeds. That's how I know her. Oh, gotcha. We've got John Hurd from Home Alone, the dad. Yeah. And we've got John Lovitz, which is everywhere. <laughs> in fact, he's uh, one of the voices in Brave Little Toaster, ah. actually. Uh, he's the best voice in Brave Little Toaster. <laughs> so Big is all about a teenage boy wishing he was much older. He event, you know, he wakes up the next morning and all of a sudden he's like a thirty-year-old, right. but he still has. I swear he, you know, IMDb describes him as a teenager, but I feel like he's a preteen. I feel like he's like twelve or thirteen. Yeah, he's like before. Because they're still collecting tarnished. baseball cards. Yeah. and and he's yeah. still really hopeful because he yeah. takes he takes all that hope into his 30-year-old body. And and he's a lot more ready to believe in things like like this this machine that can that can grant any of your wishes. Yeah. You know, so like he's got yeah, he can't be he's yeah, he's not like a 15-year-old or anything. Yeah, and I think, you know, it's it's really interesting. Elizabeth Perkins is the the romantic lead. The romantic interest and I I just think that their relationship is really funny and cute. What's great about this film is that they deal with the fact that, oh, you just skipped puberty. (laughs) And, you know, everyone else around you went through puberty. And I think when you go through puberty, not just like the mental and day-to-day life, but also like the physical change is so draining on a person's soul, you know? (laughs) So it's just really interesting. And they acknowledge it in that way. Mm. So I appreciate the film for that. That's definitely one of my favorite Robert Loggia uh, roles as mm-hmm. well. He plays, I think, the owner of the toy company that he works oh, for. Oh, and he gets to be at a toy company. How <clears throat> freaking cool is Which that? Which is perfect. Yeah. Uh, Penny Marshall directed this movie. It's my second or third favorite Penny Marshall movie, who's uh, I've talked about before, my favorite female director. Yeah, this, this is a, a classic, and so many movies these days are being compared to big still 30 years later. Uh, so, yeah, it's definitely a favorite of ours. Uh, the next film on our list, our fourth favorite film from 1988, is a Disney movie. It is Oliver and Company, which is basically Disney trying to adapt uh, Oliver Twist by Charles Dickens. 
Um, I was just gonna say British Broadway. <laughs> it's 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 it takes place in New York though. It has it was the first Disney movie to have known names as the voice cast. So you have Billy Joel voicing, you had Bette Midler, Cheech Marin, you had Rob Richard Mulligan, who was a, a well-known comedic um, actor at that time. Robert Loggia again, he's he <laughs> plays the villain in this. Dom DeLuise plays the the homeless guy whose name escapes me right now it's basically a cat this cat is oliver he's an orphan cat he gets taken in by a young girl but he gets befriended by a bunch of street animals um who, who are street actually dogs. yeah street dogs who are actually like they are their master is a homeless man who has a debt to some sort of like a crime boss played by Robert Loggia. This film does have a, a, a an actual villain death, which I feel like is kind of rare these days, to, especially in the way that this this character dies. <laughs> but I loved it. I, I had the soundtrack on vinyl. I listened to that soundtrack all the time on vinyl. I love Billy Joel's music in it. I love Huey Lewis's song in it something about new york city um i love you know and that that's what opens the movie is this song by huey lewis about new york city um new york is actually kind of like a character in the film i've always loved this movie i remember it taking forever for it to get out on vhs for me to be able to see i feel like it was literally years before it finally came out on vhs and i i just always love it i think a lot of people don't really acknowledge it and think of it as part of this dark period of disney um, but for me, it pretty much started the new golden age that most people acknowledge is started by A Little Mermaid the next year. Do you have any thoughts on Oliver and Company? I get teared up every time the little girl sings to Oliver. Oh, and yes. it's like, just thinking about Good it now, company. I'm like, I'm not, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do oh, it. I'm not going to do it. And it's really funny. Even the, the little girl does have a dog, but it's a show dog. And so show Poodle, dogs. Played by Bette yeah. Midler. And show dogs are very aloof because they're trained to be that way because mm. that's what they want in the show dog world. But she's also territorial. Well, yeah. So, I mean, you would be too if you didn't have much control over your life. So, <laughs> it's, it's very... F I, I love her, though, because she's also this, like, bad guy, essentially. And I love the characters. I love the dogs. They actually had some Oliver plushies at the oh, Disney yeah, yeah. store. Oh, yeah, yeah, because it's the 30th anniversary yeah. last year. and so I immediately got yeah. them. I was like, well, we don't know when we're going to have this again. So yeah. I was like, and we're getting Dodger and Oliver. <laughs> yeah, yeah, love that movie. Shanna, what is our third favorite film of 1988? So our next favorite film is The Land Before Time, a Don Bluth film. Yeah. And just so beautiful. And talk about crying. If you want a cleansing cry, go ahead and watch that one. Uh, that one tears me up so much because you've got an orphan brontosaurus mm -hmm. teaming up with other young dinosaurs so that they can reunite with their family in the valley. The valley so they're yeah. going through this huge journey through the valley and you can tell that the mm. time of the dinosaurs is about to end, mm. is coming to an end. It's getting closer to it because there isn't a lot of, there isn't an abundance of food everywhere. Which, that's the thing about the valley. It's, it's this fabled yeah. place where all the dinosaurs need to migrate to in order to subsist, sustain. Yeah. 
And I just, I love the voices in this film. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not going to read all of them, but you've got Pat Hingle as the narrator. Oh, okay. Just divine. Some people know voice. him as Commissioner Gordon in the 1989 Batman movie. Oh, really? mm-hmm. Okay, well, yeah. there we go. We've got Judith Barzi as Ducky. Yeah, you know, you've got, ugh, there's just, there's too many people here. Are there any, like, recognizable names? Because I can't remember any known names in that movie. Well, I'll give the, f- I'll give the cast here in just a second, but... I grew up with this film, and yeah. I'm okay going back to this film and mm-hmm. showing my kids this film, mm-hmm. unlike The Brave Little Toaster. Sure. Because there's so much love, there's so much courage. Mm-hmm. You know, everybody, even though there's a stressful situation, it's a good comparison to Brave Little Toaster. Even though this is such a stressful life and death situation, mm-hmm. they're trying to make the most of it. And even, you know, certain characters that have issues. The issues get resolved mm. and it's really wonderful and it also touches on like because some of the, di- the these are all different species of dinosaurs by the way and like the triceratops says you can't sarah. be yeah sarah the dad says you can't be friends with the brontosaurus mm-hmm. they're different right so it kind of like it, you could say it's touching on racism and the ability to choose your friends but it's a really great film i quote this film all the time with my brother and I remember it fondly because when The Land Before Time or Jurassic Park came out, I can't remember which one, one of those films came out and our equivalent of J.C. Penney in South Africa, Edgar's, had dedicated a corner of the store to all this dinosaur merchandise and it mm. was so much fun. I'm looking through the voice cast, and it is mostly actual voice actors. Um, Most notably, of course, Frank Welker, who's he's done so many sound effects, like creature sounds and stuff. He played Spike, but so oh, that makes sense um, that he would be Spike because Spike doesn't talk like the rest of the characters. Character actor Bill Irwin played the grandfather. Uh, Just really briefly, I want to say I think this is the second of two actually really great Don Bluth films. He would, he, would, he would go on and make all dogs go to heaven. And, uh, now that shit's dark. Right. The dog dies, guy. I don't... Guys. Well, that's literally the premise <laughs> of the movie. I yeah. don't think, like, his, his work, his studio really made as great a stuff as, as this film and another movie we'll talk about in a future episode. But it's a beautiful film, a uh, very touching movie. Always loved it. I understand they ran it into the ground with, like, 14 direct-to-DVD sequels. Yes. Or something. I am not acknowledging those at all. As a all. kid, number two and three were fun. Okay. Yeah. I didn't bother with any of them. For me, it was all about the original, the one that was actually released in theaters, and it's still that way. Uh, to when me. I think they and the T a... Rex was terrifying too. Oh my god, so scary! Yeah. And they didn't hold back. You literally. Yeah. This happens in the first like five minutes. You literally see the T Rex take a chunk out of a dinosaur. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh that's my right. god, it's so scary. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, we need to move on. Yeah. Uh, so The Land Before Time, by the way, if you want to check that out yourself, it's on HBO now. Woo-hoo! Our second favorite film of 1988 is, is uh, extremely beloved by Shanna. It is Who Framed Roger Rabbit, the live-action uh, animation combination movie by Robert Zemeckis, which starred Bob Hoskins and Christopher Lloyd, most notably... You got a lot of cameos in this movie because what does it do, Shanna? It's combining animation with live action. So, and Disney specifically. So, you actually get to see characters like 
the hippo from Fantasia, the ballet hippo from Fantasia. Yep. You get to see Dumbo. Mm-hmm. You get to see Mickey Mouse even. Yep. And, and most notably, um, in that way, you get to see Mickey Mouse interact with Bugs Bunny. Yeah. From Looney Hilarious. Tunes, right? And you, you also see Daffy characters. Duck. Yep. And he's bitching in the as he usually does right. in the corner, you know. So. Right. Porky Pig makes an appearance. So many characters, cartoon characters that people you get grew to up see. With. Betty Boop. Mm-hmm. Yep, that's right. It's, oh, I want to go watch it. Now. Kathleen Turner plays, uh, of course, Jessica Rabbit, who was is iconic, I think, it's, and people still cosplay Jessica Rabbit today. Uh, a great mystery. This this film. Actually, about what 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 um, led to the death of a beloved studio head, if I remember correctly. Yeah. And who you know who gets the rights to Toontown uh, as a result of this death? And why is that an issue? Mm-hmm. And what's going to result from that? And it features the advent of the freeway. Uh, so yeah. Well, I feel like it's also gaining close on the destruction of the trolleys uh-huh. because. Everybody wants to buy a car now. Right, right. And so that's really interesting too. Definitely. Yeah, no, but there's actually so much more to, to love and, and appreciate about this movie. Um, least of all is how the live-action characters successfully and believably interact with the cartoon characters. Yeah, it looks some, like something that was made today. Yeah, it's seamless. Yeah. Yeah, um, especially with Bob Hoskins and Roger Rabbit. Oh my god, so funny. I quote stuff from that as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So this is one of your absolute favorite movies. Is there anything else you want to say about it? I just, I love everyone in this film. There's mm-hmm. no one that I don't like. Mm-hmm. Every single character that's in this film is amazing. It's like they're happy to be there. And it's just really wonderful. Uh, you've got a reference to Harvey. <laughs> and I never understood that until we watched the film Harvey. And so when I watched Roger Rabbit after watching Harvey, I was like, oh my God, that's so funny. <laughs> you know, so now it just, it just gets funnier and funnier for me every year. It's very sentimental to me too. Very cool. And is a, of course, Christopher Lloyd's character becomes very yes, terrifying. one of the best villains. And a very terrifying villain. But Shanna, why don't you tell us, what is our favorite film of 1988. Our favorite film of 1998 is Bruce Willis. 1988. Sorry. 1988. Our favorite film is Bruce Willis. Is Bruce Willis? There we go. <laughs> <laughs> what? Is Die Hard, which stars Bruce Willis. Yep. <laughs> Who else does it star? Uh, we've got Alan Rickman. We've got Bonnie Bedelia. Mm-hmm. We've got Reginald Bill Johnson. Mm-hmm. We've got, guess what? William Atherton from Ghostbusters, yes. who gets marshmallow dropped on his face. He's a dick in this yeah, movie, too. Yeah, he's a dick everywhere. <laughs> so, <laughs> and it's very enjoyable to see this cast. It's a very enjoyable movie. Mm-hmm. You've got Bruce Willis, who is a New York policeman. And you know how policemen are. They're really dedicated to their work. And Bruce Willis, no matter what role he's got, he's dedicated to whatever his character is dedicated to. He's visiting his estranged wife and their two daughters for Christmas Eve. And he goes to the holiday party in this massive building. It's obviously just been constructed. Nakatomo Plaza, I believe it's called. Yeah. Things go wrong by terrorists, German terrorists. And uh, we get to see Alan Rickman as a bad guy. It's very fun. A really suave bad guy. His first film role... After doing years of stage work, 
he is like one of the most, if not the most iconic action villain ever, right? Yeah. Uh, it is one of his greatest works. This was surprisingly actually based on a novel. A lot oh, of people really? don't remember this, that this is actually based on a book. I'd be very interested in seeing what that book is like. Also, uh, one of the cast members, I, I don't know if you named him, but he would go on to star as the father in Family Matters. He plays the cop that befriends... Uh, oh, yes, I did mention him. Yeah, Reginald Van jo- Vel Johnson, yes. He, he befriends uh, Will Rogers, as, uh, as Bruce Willis uh, calls himself. You know, he's his only his only confidant, his only ally when the FBI takes over and all this. The FBI, who's headed by the guy who played the principal in Breakfast Club. Oh, yeah. Right? He's a real dick. Anyway, this is a great film, great action film. It's the granddaddy of action films. And it's also a Christmas movie. It is a Christmas yeah. movie. Absolutely. And if you go to one of the Amazon bookstores, I don't know if Barnes & Noble carry it, mm-hmm. but if you go to one of the Amazon bookstores and you go in there during the Christmas season, you will see a beautiful hardcover book of Die Hard in an illustrated form as a Christmas book. Fascinating. It's beautiful. I'd be interested in seeing that. Die Hard is our favorite movie of 1988, but what is your favorite movie of 1988? Feel free to email us at thegibsonreview at gmail.com. That'll about do it for this episode of The Movie Lovers. Shanna, why don't you share where people can find you online before we go into next episode? Yes, of course. You can find me at shannapaxton.com and find the social media you desire, social media channel you desire to follow me on over there. It's S-H-A-N-N-A-P-A-X-D-O-N.com. And you can go to thegibsonreview.com to find past episodes and articles and past reviews on there. And check out our Best of the Decade series on that website there you can go to facebook.com slash the gibson review to find third party links and links to these episodes subscribe to us on soundcloud or itunes as well so you never miss an episode feel free to leave comments reviews so that way more people more movie lovers can find this and uh let's see we're on instagram the gibson 99 i post movie related stuff on there what we're up to probably post our recording on there if you haven't already seen it and the gibson 99 on flick charts uh so you can see my list of uh every theatrically released movie i have seen uh which is growing because we're we're seeing a lot of foreign films lately and uh so a lot of new stuff speaking of foreign films speaking of foreign films that actually is um going to be one of the topics of our next episode episode 52 First of all, our main event will be a review of Jordan Peele's latest film, Us. Oh my god, that's our next one. That'll be terrifying. I'm so terrified. Yeah. Terrified, <laughs> excited. And, and then film faves will actually be looking at uh, going back and continuing the series of Best of the Decade. Our picks for our favorite foreign films of the decade. So look for that episode on April 2nd. We're already almost through a quarter here Uh, in the meantime keep loving the movies this is jeff and shanna saying bye-bye